0: Thank you for tuning into Emanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, hey, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. Morning. My name's Ryan, I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if we haven't met yet, just want to extend a welcome to you. So grateful that you're worshiping with us today. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. I, I was a little bit late to the game. On Thursday morning, I got up, went through my normal routine. I brewed my coffee. I read scripture. I spent some time praying. And then I went to my news app to sort of figure out what was going on in the world. And on Thursday morning, I found out about this submersible known as the Titan that was lost at sea. Anybody hear this story? So on Sunday morning a week ago today, the Titan went down in order to explore uh, the wreckage of the Titanic. It's owned by a private company called Ocean Gate, and um, it only cost $250,000 to go in this... um, So we were planning on doing it on the next trip, which I'm uh, not going to be on anymore. But it went down, and on Sunday, it lost uh, touch with uh, its command central. And on Thursday, they were starting. Well, they'd been freaking out everybody looking for them for days. But they knew they only had 96 hours of life support aboard this little sea craft. Here's what it would look like inside. It's about the size of your minivan. So they had five people inside, down under the ocean, and Coast Guard and other operatives are looking for them. Um, And evidently, the Coast Guard heard a noise that they thought might be this ship. It turned out that it wasn't. But the challenge was they were looking in an area that was just so massive, twice the size of Connecticut and two and a half miles deep, pitch darkness, and... Very little hope of survival. One of the experts, his name is David Gaio said, we need a miracle, but miracles do happen. Now the backstory is a little bit more devastating. In 2021, the Discovery Channel was gonna do a, a bit on the Titan for their show Expedition Unknown. They decided against it because there were so many safety concerns with this vessel. Safety concerns that the employees had raised that the company just blatantly ignored. Safety concerns that those who are in the business knew this ship was not going to do well at the depths that it was going to. And there were a number of convictions that the owners of Ocean Gate held that turned out to be a lie. They they turned out to be untrue. They caused these five people to be on board and on Thursday morning to be missing. Now, as we look at a vessel like this, I think that this story maybe reminds us of some parts of what it means to be human, sort of our story, that when we build our life on bad information, it leads us to darkness, it leads us to the place where we're in pain, where there's questions, where maybe we even have to, to, to negotiate every single breath that we take because it feels like the world is just caving in around us. See, here's what you know and what I know. The convictions that we build our life upon will eventually shape the life that we lead. And so the question is, are we building our life on truth or are we building our life on a lie? And then what we see throughout the gospel of John is that Jesus comes and Jesus dismantles false beliefs so that he can lead us to genuine wholeness. Did you know that that's his desire for you this morning? Is that you would be whole, that you would be well, that it would be well with your soul? That's his desire for every single one of us. And he meets us in great pain in order to shower us with great love and amazing grace. And he breathes signs of life into our death and our darkness. And that's exactly what we're going to see him do in John chapter 5. If you have a Bible, would you open there with me today? John chapter 5. Last week we finished John chapter four and we saw a uh, father come to Jesus and, and ask Jesus to come and heal his son. And Jesus said, I'm not gonna go with you but I will heal your son. And, and this father sort of epitomized for us what a, what a journey of faith looks like. Uh, believing in Jesus's works to believing in Jesus's word to believing in Jesus's character. And it's the journey that Jesus invites each of us to walk with him. And today we're gonna continue to see these, these signs of life that Jesus wants to lead us into. But in order to do that, he's got to confront some of the lies and false beliefs that we often build our life upon. John chapter five, are you there? Wonderful, starting in verse one, here we go. It says this, and after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there's a number of feasts that this could have been. I think John leaves it a bit ambiguous because for the story he's about to tell us, it doesn't really matter what feast it was. A lot of people think it was Passover, but we're not entirely sure. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Everybody say Bethesda, Bethesda. which had five roofed colonnades. Bethesda means the house of mercy the house of mercy. How how great of a name is that for a pool? There's these five little porches. Uh, Most people think that there was one on each side and that there was one in the middle. The one in the middle most likely separated the pool that the men went in from the pool that the women went in. And there was people that would gather around here. Here's a picture of the excavated site of the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. It's almost quite literally in the shadow of where the temple would have been, just sort of near the temple. You can see that this was a deep pool, um, uh, roughly um, about a football field long and about 20 feet deep. And people would gather all around and they would sit by the side and they would wait. What kind of people would sit there? Glad you asked, verse 3. In these laid a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, people who were were weak, people who were needing, people who were probably a bit desperate, and people who had grown to be, as we're going to see in just a moment, hopeless. And I think it's easy to look at this story and go, well, this story is is about physical healing. And, And it is. It's not about less than that, but it is certainly about more than that. See, because the truth of the matter is, friends, that every single one of us is weak. The scriptures say that while we were still what? Weak. At the right time, Christ came and he died for the godly. No. No, he died for the ungodly. He died for people that don't deserve it. See, the gospel, friends, is not. God helps those who help themselves. That is not the story of the gospel. The gospel is that God comes to the rescue of those who could not help themselves. Those who were unable to help themselves, God came and God rescued through the person and work of Jesus. And regardless of where you are today, I want you to hear undoubtedly, unequivocally that you are within the reach of Jesus. Now you'll notice that some translations Skip verse four and go straight to verse five. Anybody have that going on in their Bible? Raise your hand, okay. Some translations keep verse four in it. Now, if it skips verse four, there's a little footnote that says, verse four wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, but here's what it says, and it's in a footnote. If you have it in your Bible, there's a note that says, verse four was not in the, most, the, the earliest manuscripts that we have, but here's what we have it saying. And I just love That the scriptures have such integrity that they'll tell you. Listen, the best manuscripts we have don't include this verse, but I don't think that it's outside of the realm of possibility that it was a part of the verse because or part of the passage. Because in verse seven we see an echo back to the very thing that's referred to in verse four. Here's what verse four says: From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, if you have your um, little John journal, I just want you to put quotation marks around an angel of the Lord because many people think that what was actually going on to disturb the waters was that um, Herod had one of his palaces near the sheep gate and near the pool of Bethesda. And when he would flush his toilet, that water would go into the pool of Bethesda and it would sort of swirl around, okay? Um, That's gross, isn't it? And um, when I say flush flush your toilet, obviously it didn't work like our toilets did today, but it was a first century version of that where water would presumably get piped into the pool. So it may have been an angel or not, or not. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Everybody say one man. And I'm just struck by those two words that in a multitude of people, Jesus sees one. In a group of people who are longing to experience healing and wholeness, Jesus goes to this one, and I think he does it for two reasons. I think he does it because he's not a a miracle-dispensing healing machine, and he didn't heal everybody that he saw who was struggling. He didn't but I think it also shows us that Jesus comes to us individually, not to the masses. That sure, God so loved the world, but he also loved you. And he comes to you and he looks directly at you and he sees the pain and he sees the sorrow and he sees the struggle. And for this man, he saw 38 years of hopelessness that had just set into his soul thinking if I could just be the first one in this water, but but I've never been that guy. I've never been able to get there first. And I've been struggling for 38 years as Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12 said, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And we all know that duration adds gravity to our pain and our misery, doesn't it? So Jesus goes straight to this one man and listen to what it says. When Jesus saw him, I love that. When Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he'd been there a long time because he knew his story. We're not sure if he went and asked him directly or if he heard from other people, or if he just knew because he's Jesus, but he knew his story. He knew the pain. He didn't overlook it and he didn't look past it. And he said to him, let's just read this sentence, this question together, church. He said to him, do you want to be healed? Which sounds a bit like a silly question, doesn't it? It would be like asking somebody, do you want a million dollars? Do you want to be healed? Of course I want to be healed. That's why I'm, that's why I'm here. Do you want to be healed? Well, that's, that's why we have a, a medical profession, because we all want to be healed. Healed? Do you want to be healed? It just sounds a little bit like a silly question, but I think if we start to probe a little bit underneath the surface, I, I, I don't think it's as easy to answer as we might initially assume. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to change? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to let go of some of your old patterns of doing things? Do, do you want to be healed? Do you, do you want to grow? Do you want to... Be different. Do, do you want something new or do you want something familiar, something that you can control, something that you can predict? See, do you want to be healed may not be as easy a question as we originally think because for in, in many ways, this man's sickness, his illness, his pain had defined his life. To let go of it might be to let go of the very piece of his identity that he had grown more accustomed to than anything else. See, at times when we experience pain and we become a victim, it can be easy to let that define our identity. Do you want to be healed? Do you want that depression lifted? Do you want that anxiety lifted? Do you want the marriage to be restored? Like, really? Really? Do you? See, see, Jesus, I think this is the way that you and I would engage in a conversation rather than just walking in and going, boom, you're healed. I think he wants to know what's in his heart. What are the desires? He's giving dignity back to this man that had most likely been stripped of him over the 38 years of sitting next to this pool. And just note, Jesus does not ask him, Do you have the faith to be healed? He just simply says, Do you have the desire? Do you have the desire? So the question is a yes, no question, correct? Do you want to get healed? The answer is either yes or. And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. Does he answer the question Jesus asked? No. And I imagine Jesus looks back at him, we don't have this recorded and goes, that's wonderful, but it's not what I asked. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? And I think in asking this question and the man's answer, I think Jesus is drawing the lies that this man believes to the surface of his life so that he can see them and confront them and then reckon with whether or not he's willing to believe Jesus instead of the lies that he has lived with. See, because one of the lies that he's lived with for 38 years was, if I get to that pool first, then maybe, just maybe, I will be able to walk out of that It's a worldview that is shaped and tinged by what we might call magic or paganism or superstition. That there's this belief that there's a power out there somewhere, but that it's an impersonal power that has no personality and doesn't care about us personally. The power is also arbitrary. If you get to the pool first, then you will be healed. In fact, on one of the excavations done of this site, there was a statue, a little shrine built to Asclepis, Escle- one of the Greek gods of, um, of healing and medicine. And all of this, catch this, all of this is happening literally in the shadow of the temple. Like one scholar wrote and said, Jesus is in competition with the ancient healing sanctuaries. He's going toe to toe with some of the convictions that people held onto and water or this pool will become the stage, it will become the prop through which Jesus declares his supremacy over all, over all. See, this man needs healing, but the person who can provide it is standing right in front of him. But he's too bound by superstition to be able to engage with Jesus who's offering him restoration. See, I think it's easier, to, easier than maybe we often imagine to enter into what we might call syncretistic beliefs, meaning that we, we take Christianity and then we combine it with a few other things and sort of mash it together to make a new thing entirely. And, and some of these traditions or superstitions are things that we've we held on to. They're just cultural. They were passed down from one generation to the next. I mean, think of some things like, um, don't let a black cat cross your path. Like where'd that, where'd that come from? Or don't, don't walk under a ladder. Or um, have you noticed that some hotel rooms don't have a 13th floor? Like you can't, there's no button to go to that floor. Or what about this one? What about this one? Knocking on wood, right? Oh, knock on wood, hope that doesn't happen. Where did that come from? Glad you asked, okay? So there's this old pagan belief that there were fairies that lived in the trees. And when you wanted something from the fairies, a promise or some form of provision, you would go and you would knock on the trunk of the tree in order to get the fairy to do what you wanted that fairy to do. Knock on wood. We still do it today. Or what about this? When somebody sneezes, you say, Bless you. God bless you. Why? Well, because there was this old conviction, this old belief that when you sneezed, your soul and your body would be separated for a moment. And when your soul was outside of your body, the devil could steal your soul and capture it and take it into hell for damnation. So in order to prevent that from happening, people would say, God bless you so that your soul would then be reunited with your body and not captive from the devil. (laughs) <laughs> bless you, thank you you guys all failed the test but um <laughs> or what about this one what about this one um people have always been into like astrological signs and, and all of that but now it's like birth time like what what time were you born and that has some form of something to say about compatibility with somebody else I mean superstition is everywhere We're not outside of it, though, as followers of Jesus. I mean, how many of you have heard somebody say, well, don't don't put anything on top of the Bible? It's superstition. Or like this conviction, if I don't get up in the morning and don't do my quiet time, then something bad is gonna happen to me. It's superstition. Or if I don't give exactly 10% of my income to the church or to a nonprofit, then, then God is not gonna bless me financially. It's superstition. It's Jesus plus... Or it's Jesus and uh, just in case. Like I'll hang this picture from my rearview mirror so that I don't get in an accident. Jesus plus or Jesus just in case. It's the same thing that Jesus was freeing this man from at that pool so many years ago. Healing does not come from an impersonal power, but from personal Jesus. That's where healing flows from. That's where wholeness comes from. See, by way of contrast, the scriptures will command us. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths or to endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And what? Paul's writing to this church and he says, listen, when you dive into myths, when you enter into speculation, what you do is you actually prevent yourself from being able to love. And that's why it's such a danger. Not only that, but it blocks us from being able to encounter Jesus, who is actually the one who gives true healing and wholeness and restoration. I love that Jesus... um, ultimately just ignores the silliness that this man has just spewed, okay? Listen to what he says. And Jesus says to him, he doesn't like even acknowledge the fact that this guy's just said, yeah, an angel stirs the water, and I need to be first, and I haven't been first. He's like, yeah, 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 okay, okay. Um, get up. Take up your mat. And Walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his mat and he walked. Get up. Like literally take a step of faith. Get up. Take your mat, that mat that you've been on for years and years and years. Put it under your arm. Um, How many of you um, have gone to the gym and you've smelled the mats at the gym? Or or like how many of you have smelled a yoga mat, right? After like years and years of use. I mean, it makes hockey gear smell like potpourri, okay? So put your mat, that nasty mat that you've sat on for days and maybe even years and maybe decades, put it under your arm and walk. And I think it's so interesting that Jesus says, take that mat. It's as though he's saying, don't leave your story behind. Don't leave your scars behind. Don't leave all the pain behind because those are the very thing that are gonna give you a testimony to share with the world around you because there are other people who are hurting and who are in need and they don't just need to see your pretty face, they need to see your scars because the mat was a symbol of the miracle that Jesus had done. The mat was a picture of the restoration and the healing that Jesus had provided for this man. I was an addict, but now I'm free. I was anxious, but God has given me peace. I was, our marriage was on the rocks, but God has restored. What's your mat? What's your mat that Jesus has lifted you off of, but said, carry it with you so that every time someone asks, you can tell the story of what I've done. Get up, take your mat, and walk. And he did. Then, now the day was the, what? Sabbath. Now the day was the Sabbath, if this were a movie, the music would change, the scenery would go a little bit darker. There would be this like hint of like an ominous flavor of what's coming next and certainly you would be right. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So in obeying Jesus, this man broke the Sabbath. Sort of, sort of. A little bit of background I think is necessary for us to actually engage that question. Did he break Sabbath? Sabbath was one of the 10 commandments that God gave to the nation of Israel. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall what? Labor. But on the seventh day, But on the seventh day, it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it, you shall not do any, what? Any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner sojourner who is within your gates. So Sabbath was a day that was set apart to not do any labor and to not do any work. So the question is, is the man doing labor when he's walking around carrying his Matt? well it depends on who you would ask see there was a lot of debate amongst the rabbis about what it meant to travel on the sabbath it wasn't you couldn't travel on the sabbath but how far do you have to go before you're traveling they would say about a thousand yards now how'd they come up with that i have no idea general consensus Oh, uh, What about carrying your mat? Are you allowed to do that? Is that labor or is that work? Well, the book of Jeremiah would say, thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath or bring it in by the gate of Jerusalem. So is carrying your mat bearing a burden? Well, the rabbis had 49 different rules that you could look at to figure out whether or not you were actually carrying a burden. I would suggest to you that this man is not, in fact, breaking Sabbath. He's breaking the rules that the leaders had set up around Sabbath so that nobody broke Sabbath. He's breaking the the fences that were mended in order to protect this law. There was such a strong conviction amongst the Jewish people. If we are able to keep Torah and practice Torah perfectly, then the Messiah will come back. And there was no weightier law in the Torah than Sabbath. But I would suggest to you, this man was not violating Sabbath. He was violating tradition. He was violating tradition. And Jesus didn't have a lot of respect for tradition, but he had immense reverence for scripture. See, these traditions became religion because the Jewish leaders wanted to try to protect and control and be able to say, we have been perfect, therefore, God, you must come back. And if the first false belief that Jesus confronts when he walks up to this man at the pool was superstition, the second false belief that he confronted was legalism, was legalism. I mean, how devastating that the breaking of Sabbath outshines the healing of a man who'd been unable to walk for 38 years. I mean, talk about majoring on the minors. Talk about missing the plot. The trivial became major and the major became trivial. And friends, I I just... I think there's so much tendency within the church for us to do the exact same thing, to lose the plot, to lose the fact that it's about Jesus, to focus on the minutiae and miss the fact that Jesus is redeeming and Jesus is healing and Jesus is on the move and his spirit is prompting and calling and moving and we can focus on the little tiny details and miss the forest for the trees. See, legalism is is really dangerous for two reasons. Number one, number one, what we see here is that legalism prevents us from being able to actually see and respond to human need. Or you might put it like this, you cannot be legalistic and loving. You can be legalistic or loving, but you can't be legalistic and loving. The leaders, their legalism crowded them out from being able to celebrate the fact that Jesus had healed. And they missed the fact that every command Jesus gives is for the flourishing of people. But here's the second thing that happened. See, the second thing that legalism does is it prevents us from being able to encounter true power from our true God. See, because legalism is built on control. If I do this, then God has to do that. It turns God into a cosmic slot machine, a vending machine. We plug in the right equation and he pushes out the output that we all want him to push out. And that's the way that we oftentimes approach obedience to God. But you cannot be legalistic and spirit empowered. It doesn't work that way. And I think, if you read through this story, I think... There are two sicknesses that Jesus is healing. One is in this man's body. The other is in the legalistic religious system that held people in bondage. So it got me thinking about that um, old movie, Chariots of Fire. You know that movie, right? About a runner, um, Eric, Lydell, who is quoted as saying, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Maybe this will help. 1924 Olympics, Lydell is slated to race, but his race comes up on a, what day? On the Sabbath. And so he says, I can't run on the Sabbath. I'm not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And in so many ways, you know, we hold up this story as like emblematic of what it looks like to be devoted to Jesus and to say, yes, even when it's hard. And I think you can get that out of this story. I think you can also get legalism out of this story. I was wondering this week, like, should he, should he have run? Or maybe not should he have run, like, could he have run? Could he have run and been okay with God? Or does God have like such a strict box that we have to fit in in order to honor the Sabbath that we couldn't even run in the Olympics on Sabbath? I don't know, it's something for you to think about, but for us, I think there's all sorts of questions about what it looks like to be obedient to Jesus, which he calls us to do, but not legalistic. Listen to what the apostle Paul would write. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive because that's what can happen. That's what can happen. When we fall prey to legalism, we're in captivity by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Human tradition, that sounds a whole lot like the way that they were practicing Sabbath. Elemental principles, that sounds a whole lot like the healing that they were waiting for by the pool of Bethesda. And it's not according to Christ. So he comes and he confronts both of them. The next thing that happens is is quite beautiful. The leaders come to this man and they asked him what happened and it says this, the man who healed me, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. They're like, why are you doing it? He goes, he told me to. Well, why'd you listen to him? Well, I couldn't walk and then I could. So I just did what he said. And they asked him, who is this man who said, take up your bed and walk? Which is a great question. And if somebody heals you, presumably you might ask, what's your name? Turns out he didn't. Now the man who'd been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. And I wonder if he just says, hey, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man does. And he's like, no way. Where are you? Where'd you go? Jesus is like, peace Jesus out, right? I don't know. Afterward, Jesus found him. Everybody say, found him. See, we see that Jesus sees him by the pool, but he finds him in the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's fascinating to me. Where does the man first go after he experiences healing? Where does he go? The temple. Where was he not allowed to go for 38 years because he was unable to walk and he was unwell and unclean? The temple. He goes to the very heart of encounter with God, the very place that the Jewish people believed that the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. He goes as close as he can get to God, maybe to say thank you, maybe just to offer his prayer, maybe just to go and look and explore the place that he'd been in the shadow of for 38 years. And it's in that spot that Jesus finds him. And he says two things to him. See, you are well. He points out the grace that's all over his life the mercy of God that's displayed and the fact that he's able to stand up and put one foot in front of the other. And I think Jesus just wants to remind him, this is your story. And then he says to him, sin no more. And in the Greek, it's this idea of like general, not specific, like he's doing something in that moment that's wrong, but just specific, sin no more. And as many commentaries as you read on this passage, you'll find that many different opinions about what Jesus means. I think, this is just my personal opinion, I think what Jesus is saying is that there's something worse than being unable to walk for 38 years. And it's being separated from God for all of eternity. And if you continue reading in John chapter 5, you'll see in the next few verses that that's where Jesus goes. And he starts talking about judgment, and he starts talking about resurrection. And what he's saying is, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible to be by that pool, waiting and hopeless for 38 years. But what's even more devastating is being separated from God for all of eternity. That's what he's saying. And the sin that he is confronting is the unwillingness to believe that Jesus is the one in whom God is revealed and through whom God's power works as we begin to sort of close down our time, I just wanna invite you to write down this last phrase. This healing wasn't only about the man walking. It was about this man walking with Jesus. That's what this is about. It's not just a healing, it's an invitation to come and to be made whole, to come to the one who's approaching you, who by grace has come to you when you were weak, when you were sick, when you were unable to get to God, when you were unable to help yourself, he has come to you. And the story isn't just about a man walking, it's about a man who's invited to walk with Jesus. The story ends by saying the man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the what? (laughs) Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now and I am working. My father's working and so am I. And we may not catch it on the surface, you guys, but every single person in his original audience knew exactly what Jesus just did. Jesus just said, the father and I are one. And if God's still working, and certainly he is, I mean, he created it all, but he sustains it all moment by moment, breath by breath, nothing exists apart from him. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God and nothing came into being that did not come into being because Jesus spoke it into being and nothing is held together that Jesus does not hold together. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm not breaking Sabbath, I'm acting like God. Who holds all things together? The only reason you're alive is because God, quote unquote, broke Sabbath. That's what Jesus is saying. And in so doing, don't miss this, in so doing, he is claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath. In so doing, he's complaining, com, he is stating that he is above all, that he is God, and that he can be trusted and he can be worshiped. This passage calls on us to dismantle all of those things that we build our life upon, oftentimes legalism or superstition, or you could name maybe a thousand other things that you build your life upon. And it calls us to surrender those and to worship Jesus, to worship Jesus alone, because those false beliefs must be condemned for Jesus to be enthroned. You may have followed that story of what happened with with the Titan that ended in tragedy. All five people who were on board lost their lives. And even though life sometimes feels dark and it sometimes feels cold and it sometimes feels like we're just drifting, today we are Invited to encounter the one that holds it all together, to let go of the things that we've held on to in place of Him and to run back towards Him, to bow at His throne. As that expert, as they were looking for this little submersible, said, We need a miracle, but miracles do happen. And to that I say, Amen the King of kings and Lord of lords, emptied himself of all that it meant to be God, took the very form of humanity, became a servant, gave his life on the cross for our sins that we might know what it means to have true full life forgiven in him. And then he raised from the dead with life in his hands. And he says back to you and back to me, will you trust me? Do you believe? And I think he comes to every single one of us today. And he looks at us with the pain that we often carry and the hurt that we often hold. And he says to every single one of us today, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? I'm gonna invite you to just close your eyes for a moment. I don't know what kind of burden you walked in with, it might be something physically going on where you would say, God, I need your healing touch. It might be something emotionally that you're dealing with. Maybe just like an an anxiousness, you don't know where it came from. Just a depression that just can't seem to shake. Maybe there's just relational strife and brokenness in your life. And I think Jesus is coming to you today and he's asking you, do you want to be healed? So, what's your response to him? What do you want to say to him? Just imagine him sitting down right next to you, putting his arm around you, saying, do you want to be healed? that's you if 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 you walked in with a burden today and you feel like this story's for you in some way i just want to invite you to to just stand up i want to pray for you if you're going yeah i'm i feel like he's looking at me saying do you want to be healed would you just take that just step a bold move to say yeah i'm just stand up right where i'm at You wanna be healed. Lord, for every single person who's standing and those even who aren't, but are holding on to something that they just maybe can't even imagine letting go of. For every single person who's standing, Lord, that you know exactly what's on their heart. You know exactly the kind of healing and wholeness and restoration that they are longing for. And maybe some of them have been waiting for years and years and years, just like the man that you met at this pool. Lord, I pray that today you would speak a word that would be a word of life. God, that you would restore, you're able to speak life into dead things. And I pray that you would do that for my friends that are standing up and there's something physically going on in their body. We believe that you don't have to be physically present to heal physically. We don't have to be able to touch you for you to be able to touch us. Would you touch them even right now and restore and heal, please? For those that are carrying a burden emotionally, there's just things going on in their life that are causing a darkness and pain. There's this like anchor in their soul that they just can't seem to let go of. Would you break those chains, Jesus? Would you speak a word of hope and a word of joy, a word of light and a word of life into the places that we're experiencing death? And Lord, for those that are in the place where there's relational things going on and there's struggles going on relationally and they're not exactly sure where to go and how to make things right or what restoration looks like, Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom, that you would soften hearts, that you would restore as only you can do. So thank you for being the kind of God that sifts through and fights through all of the lies that we believe, the superstitions, the legalisms, all the lies that we believe and stands before us in order to offer us the wholeness that you long for us to walk in. May we be the kind of people who say yes to you and who experience the life that you came to give in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. Amen.